1992. I was 16 years old, and I was sitting there in my living room, and my father came in the living room, and it was late. Normally, I would have to go to bed because of school, but this day, my dad said, it's okay. And we sat up, and we watched the news. Because on the news that night, it was actually May of 1992. There were over 12,000 arrests, over 60 people killed in the 1992 LA riots. Those riots happened because a gentleman named Rodney King, he was stopped in his car and he was beaten. They said he was on PCP, so the officers had to hit him again and again and again. But it was one of the first moments that we've ever had in our nation of police brutality being caught on film. A story that many within the community there, black and brown people there in LA would say this was a normal way of life, but this was now caught on film. And because of the shocking moment of being seen on film, it caused riots in our nation. Imagine me, 1992, I'm sitting there with my dad and as we sit there, my father began to tell me a story. My father, is from Moss Point, Mississippi. My father is over 70 years old. And as I sat there and I watched, I, I, we talked about it, we talked about it. And what he told me that day is something that I would never forget. My nickname was Bump growing up. He said, Bump. And I was like, Dad, why is this all this happening? Because you gotta remember that the, the reason why the riots were happening wasn't because Rodney King was beat. The, the riots were happening because the men that did it got off. So the rage had filled the room and I'm just like, how did he get off? Like, how did that happen? We all saw the video. And my dad and I talked and I'll never forget what he said. He said, Bump, I know you're working hard in school. Actually, wasn't working that hard in school. But I know that you're trying to achieve Bump, you'll never achieve your way out of this country not thinking you're a nigger. You won't achieve your way out of that. Now, that word my father was using, he wasn't saying that to me as a derogatory statement. He was saying, James C. Roberson III, you will always be considered a threat by complexion. You'll always be considered a threat. You can't degree your way out of a threat being considered a threat. I sat there and I talked with them and we were thinking. Now I'm in this moment looking at this image of fire and riots, but my dad, you see my dad, like so many people, they don't need a video to tell them of what this world is made of, what this country is made of. They have stories. And then that night my dad told me a story. He said, Bump, you gotta understand, I'm 70 some years old and there was a boy my age in Mississippi, a woman named Carol Dunham was in a store one day in 1955. While she was in this store, she said a young boy came up to her and clasped her wrist, put her, his hand on her waist, and he said to her, this young little black boy, 14 years old, I've been with white women before. 
Carol Dunham went back and told her friends that what this young black boy had done. And so that night, those men went to the house of Emmett Till. When they went to his house, they took him, they beat him, they lynched him, they gouged out his eyes, they shot him in the head, and then they put a, radio, a, a, a fan from a cotton gin, a 75 pound fan from a cotton gin, they tied it around his neck and they threw him in the river. Those men that did it got off. Later, years later, Carol Dunham would admit, I wasn't telling the truth. That moment was so shocking to the nation because it wasn't just the story, it was the image. You see, you have to understand the image that we're gonna show, the image is the face of Emmett Till. And his mother said, no, I want an open casket. I want them to see what they did to my baby. And on that moment, the Chicago Defender, which was a, a, a black magazine, essentially a black newspaper, and Jet Magazine, which is a black magazine. They both showed not only the pictures of the funeral, they showed the picture of his face. And when they showed the picture of his face, many historians would say, there in 1955, that image sparked a movement, the civil rights movement. Images often create shock in us. It's been said that a picture is worth a thousand words. My dad told me that story because to be clear, my dad is the same age as Emmett Till. My dad is not in some history book. My dad is not in some far off land. My dad is in my phone book. I can talk to him about his stories. That day he told me the story of racism, not in the country, but in his life. What are the stories we tell about racism? Far too often, images are what, us, what causes us to talk about racism. Shocking images. Shocking images are where we're at in our country today, where we have to see video after video just to get to the point where we talk about racism. We have to be shocked into a conversation. Why did my dad say, you'll always be considered a threat? Ultimately, what my father was saying is, nothing has changed. When you have to be shocked into a conversation, it is, indi it is an indication that in some way, Racism is allowed to be normalized in our country. And its, its worst, most far-reaching moments are the only thing that transcend into the conscience of America. So it has to be the face of an Emmett Till. And we continue to say his name. We need the stories, the stories to shock us into conversations. So we have to talk about Tamir Rice. Boy caught on camera with a toy gun, shot and killed, placed inside the police vehicle. We have to say his name. 
He shocked us into a conversation. The conversation went down. Our consciousness went somewhere else. Terrence Krushner, a man who was just merely afraid of his car blowing up. And so what they did was he lies on the ground because there's helicopters there and people think he's going crazy. He had no gun on him. The man in the helicopter said he looks like a bad dude. They end up shooting him and killing him, another unarmed black man. We were shocked. We protest. We were shocked into the conversation. Then there's these moments like Sandra Bland. Sandra Bland, who was coming out of Prairie View University there, down there in Texas. She just happens to make a right turn. The cop pulls up beside her just to see what she was doing. The, the woman is well-educated, doing nothing wrong. Somehow they say she committed suicide in prison. Sandra Bland, we said her name. And then there was Eric Garner. Eric Garner is selling cigarettes on the corner there in Staten Island. And as he sells his cigarettes, uh, someone catches on camera how the police are coming around him. And he's a big man, a big man. And so they come policemen after policemen and they tackle him. And he said these words, the words that we've heard even this week. I can't breathe. I can't breathe. Eric Garner's story of not being able to breathe wasn't believed. He was placed in an illegal chokehold and there he was, dead. We saw all of it. Name after name, Trayvon Martin, Oscar Grant, name after name. And these names, like Mike Brown, are, they're etched into the consciousness of black America but they're only a momentary conversation in all of America. We have to be shocked into the conversation. Unless we forget, a couple weeks ago, Breonna Taylor, sleep in her home at night with her boyfriend and the cops go to the wrong house to get the guy that they're after. They end up shooting her and killing her. The woman is an EMT. She constructed her life around saving lives and her life was taken because they thought that house was someone else's. Breonna Taylor. Ahmaud Aubrey. We saw it on film only just a couple weeks ago, running in his neighborhood, nothing in his hands, shot dead on the ground. And so we see these names and we're shocked into these conversations, but this is why my dad said nothing has changed. This is why he said you'll always be a threat. Racism is not increasing. It is merely being placed on film more. We're just seeing more of it. Interesting thing happened this week. Very, very interesting. Um, Christopher Keyes, uh, he is, was a youth pastor in Macon, Georgia. 
He decided to commit adultery on his family and decided to go to a hotel room, go on Craigslist and be with uh, some male prostitutes. But instead of being with male prostitutes, these two men that were there were actually there to rob him. When he was robbed and called the police, he said two black men did it. Two black men robbed me. They weren't black at all. Patricia Ripley, down in Florida, this week, drowned her autistic son. And they caught it on film. And when the, she drowned her son, she said, two black men did it. Thomas Austin, in Minneapolis, he was in his WeWork, and they have a gymnasium down there, and he decided to go down to the gymnasium. And when he went down there, he saw these black men down in the gymnasium. He had never seen them before. And he says, I don't believe you should be here. And they, the young men said, no, we work here. We're residents here. We, we use this, we work. They filmed it. Thomas Austin was no longer allowed to be there, but he acknowledged he thought they were a threat. And then to top it all off, Amy Cooper. Amy Cooper there walking her dog in Central Park, and just by happenstance, a man named Christian Cooper is bird watching there in the ramble there in Central Park, an area where often dogs will be and bird watchers will be, but dogs needed to be on a leash. And so Christian Cooper looks at his namesake, Amy Cooper, and says, hey, you need to have your dog on a leash. This made her so scared because this black man dare have her follow the rules. And so Christian Cooper pulls out his camera on his phone and Amy Cooper says, police, come here now. And African American man is coming after me. And she knew she weaponized that word because she said African American, but she meant nigga. That's what she meant. She said, this is a threat. This is a bad man and he's coming after me. Christian Cooper, their bird watching, all of a sudden became a threat. What is the story that Amy Cooper believed? Amy Cooper was just a person that worked in insurance. Thomas Austin was a person as a real estate agent. Sarah Ripley's stay at home mom. Christopher Keyes, he's just a youth pastor and he's in our community and these people live, but they have a story they've been told about black people and they've been carrying that story for years. The threat of African-American and all these people, if you'd ask them, they would say, I am not racist. All of this then led to that video earlier this week. Derek Chavon, along with several other officers, have placed George Floyd in handcuffs, placed him on the ground. Now Derek Chavon has his knee on George Floyd's neck. He begins to say he can't breathe. Then he calls out for his dead mama. His eyes begin to bulge out. And it's all captured on film, multiple angles. And it started a conversation. And it even started a riot. 
and riots have been happening when people are at a place of rage. One African proverb said it this way. He said that the child who is not embraced by the village will burn it down to feel its warmth. And in this moment, the rage that black and brown people feel, they are saying to the world, there is a problem. To be clear, and I just said this on a Facebook Live earlier, I'm not condoning violence, but I'm affirming their voices. I hear you. I hear you as you spray paint. I hear you as you yell their name in protest. As you say Sandra Bland, as you say Breonna Taylor, as you say George Floyd, I want you to know as a pastor, I hear you, but I'm here today to tell you not only does God hear you, God is in the protest and he is saying George Floyd's name. He's saying those names and their blood cries out. And we feel this rage because we keep telling these stories to people. And what's happening amongst black and brown people is what psychologists call racial trauma. We put a definition up there, but amongst all the elements of racial trauma, there is something traumatizing about seeing a video only confirm what your life has already told you. They think I'm a threat. The police are pulling me over and I got to make sure that I don't twitch because I saw that video with Philando Castile. I'm in my neighborhood and I just went out and get some Skittles and an Arizona iced tea, but I got to be careful because I remember what they did to Trayvon Martin. I'm pulling out of my university and I've got to make a turn and I'm going and here comes the cop. I remember what they did to Sandra Bland and I'm sleeping at night, laying in my bed, and I hear a knock at the door, and I feel this shock, and I feel get this remembrance of all those microaggressions of people like Amy Cooper at my job, because Amy Cooper is related to somebody in the police force. Amy Cooper has a family, and she has a belief about black people that was told to her. And this trauma has built up in the minds and hearts of black and brown people. And we are traumatized when we see these videos. We are traumatized when we are in these conversations. But I'm here today to not offer rage for rage, but to offer hope for pain. In Psalm 5, that was read by Rasul earlier, we actually don't know what David was going through at the time, but David said to the Lord, give ear to my words, O Lord. Consider my groaning. Give attention to the sound of my cry, my King and my God, for to you, for to you do I pray. He, he goes on to say later that he's, he's echoing these prayers to God. But there's this incredible thing that he says there, groaning. I love what he does. He talks about groaning and, 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 and praying. 
And when he's talking about groaning, he's saying agony. And, and oftentimes he's acknowledging that agony is not always articulate. Agony is not always in the place of explaining. I love how he says groaning and praying because sometimes our words are not conducive to be articulate in our prayers. Sometimes all we can do is groan. The church mother on the bench used to just groan and wail. She used to just sing a melody deep within her heart. And it said everything that needed to be said to God. Sometimes you don't need to get caught up in explaining your pain. You just need to groan before God. Paul, the apostle in Romans, picks this up. But he expands this idea of groaning. Because what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, he says in verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Hold that imagery. And he says, and not only the creation, creation is groaning, meaning that we have global pandemics, that we have systems that are out of order, that we have mothers that drown their kids, and we have pastors that lie about people. The creation groans. Everything is going wrong and things are out of order. You do not need to be a theologian to know that things are going wrong. All you have to do is say things are going wrong and there's a better way. The creation groans. And he says that it's like childbirth. And in verse 23, he says, and not only the creation, but we ourselves we have the first fruits of the spirit grown inwardly as we eagerly await our adoption as sons. And he's saying we're groaning. There's all these things that are out of order and out of control. And then he says to, to the believer that loves God and is waiting on this day that they will be in the kingdom with the king. And he wipes away every tear and there's no more death and no more dying. Before we get to that day that we long to be in, we groan. And he uses this picture of childbirth. All the moms that are watching this right now, we, we, my, my wife and I, we love when Mother's Day comes, SNL does these skits where the kid walks up to the mom and says, mom, do you remember when I was born? And she was like, yeah. And then they show all these scenes where the mom's like cussing the dad out and she's like crying and moaning. He's like, give me drugs, right? You know, because, because we remember the beauty of the birth of the baby. But the process of childbirth, that's pain. And what Paul says is if we, could, if we were to use birthing as an analogy to life, he says we're not where the baby came out yet. We're where the wife is crying and screaming and moaning. And I've had three kids. It's never a pretty sight, amen? Mom's there, ah, ah, she's crying, oh my gosh. And he says, we groan. And I believe that the pain of life is different for different people. We groan in different ways. But there are some people feeling the groan of this world, the pain and anxiety of this world deeper than others. They can't explain the way they feel. They're just feeling it deeply. They're traumatized, they're hurted, they're disgusted, they're enraged. And they can't always Explain. Can you imagine while I was 
sitting there with my wife. I had her hand and I have my hand uh, on her brow. And I'm like, come on, baby, come on, baby. And she's just like, oh gosh, get this out. I'm like, come on, baby, come on, baby. And she's like, oh gosh. And I go, can you explain to me what this feels like? She'd be like, what? No, explain to me, like, what's it like? Can you tell me how much it hurts? She would look at me like I'm crazy because she's groaning. And so I want to categorize this moment. For black and brown people that are living life in America and you've read books and you've Googled stuff and you've watched the videos and you've done protests, I implore you not to put yourself in a position to constantly explain your pain. It will only re-traumatize yourself. Never explain your pain to the hard-hearted. It will only deepen their ignorance and it will ignite your rage. Stop explaining. Tell, tell, lovingly tell people there are books, there's Google, there's so much access to information out there. If you have to explain that syst systematic racism exists, that is a person I believe that is going to re-traumatize you in a conversation where you're groaning and explaining. Groaning does not always need explaining. You're just feeling the weight of this world. Why are we in a space right now where we're always explaining racism? Moreover, why do we feel the need to constantly explain racism to white people? And why can't white people ever explain racism? No, what I'm saying is, I get it that black folks are always the person coming to the Martin Luther King talk. And I get it that, you know, we get invited to speak on the, but why, why do we keep talking about racism like it is a personal experience for black people? Racism is not a personal experience. Racism is a system that we're all experiencing. I am feeling its detriment. White folks are feeling its benefits. We're all experiencing racism. You just get the good parts. And so until we get to a place that we stop acting like racism is just something I chose on the menu, we, start have, to re we have to realize that it is not our job to educate America that things are bad. It's not our job to always do the protests. It's not our job to write all the books. It's not our job to make all the movies. It's not our job to express blackness in a way where it's always tied to trauma. Every movie doesn't have to be about our pain. Every story doesn't have to be the TMZ of all of our pain. We, do, we are not people of pain. We're people of God's creation. We don't always have to be in a mode of explanation. We are glorious people. We are beautiful people. We dance, we sing, we read, we're scientists. We are more than our pain. We are done explaining our pain as the definition of who we are. We are much more than pain. You explain it. Our brothers and sisters who are white 
There, there's a great book, The Color of Compromise by Jamar Tisby. Read that with your white friends and have a deep conversation because white people act different when there's a black person in the room. And there are jokes that have been normalized in fully white spaces. And what ends up happening is we allow black people to come in and explain blackness. And really blackness ends up being this kind of fetish that makes you progressive and cool. Racism will only get eradicated when we stop making black people the model, the, the, the conversation piece. Racism is an entire system in our country. And white people are brothers and sisters who I know love God and are really good people. I'm so thankful for many of you that have shared this on your page. I'm so thankful for many of you that, you know, you go and you protest. So thankful for you. I'm so thankful for our white brothers and sisters that actually go and they, 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 they post stuff on their page. They get into arguments on their page. I'm so thankful for you because you check those people. But do you want to be an activist? Check your grandmother. I'm saying like there are people in your life that you esteem that they're just a little racist and you've been cool with it. I'm saying your Thanksgiving table needs to get checked. You want to be an abolitionist? Abolish slavery, abolish racism at your dinner table in the barbershop. Those small micro jokes that your friends and family members do because Amy Coopers are everywhere. They just don't act like that around us. White people have to lead the charge to eradicate racist thinking in our country. They have to lead that charge. We, we have to have a whole reorientation of the way that we do seminaries. It cannot be that race is a category that you take. Race must be central to understanding God in America because race is central. Racism is central to America. How are you going to be a mis on mission in America and you don't understand race or racism? But at the same time, you say you want a multi-ethnic church. You don't want multi-cultures, you want multi-colors. You want black and brown people scattered in the room like Skittles for good Polaroid pictures, but you don't want to understand the story. And so what we have to have is we have to have an entire reorientation of the way we have conversations in education and in parenting. Our white brothers and sisters, they have to be able to have these conversations at their tables with their kids. This has to be a conversation that's being had, not post-trauma, but in the middle, at central to how you see your kids, is these kids are going to be doctors, lawyers, cops, people, and you must tell them early, black people are valuable, made in the image of God, and they also are having systems work against them. Say their names. Say the names of Breonna Taylor. Teach them while they're young. Because if you don't, there's a story they're gonna to be told about black people. And so the moment that we're in, for those of us that are black and brown, and for those of us that are 
whether you're white, whatever, and you're supporting this movement and you're feeling the trauma of this. Look at what Paul says. He says, likewise, the spirit helps in our weaknesses for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows that he is the mind of the spirit because the spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. This is Pentecost Sunday, and this is the day that is historically reminding the church that the Spirit of God came down to be on mission. But the Spirit of God does not only push us towards mission, the Spirit of God comes and his comfort and his peace indwell us. And for you, my brother who protested last night, and you're just looking at this Facebook video and just thinking to yourself how frustrated you are. You don't even know what to say. The spirit of God longs to interpret that to God. The spirit of God wants to carry all your emotions to God. The spirit of God wants to walk with you as you are frustrated and you are angry, as you are worried about tomorrow, as mothers and sons, they having conversations, as parents are thinking, should we let you out the door, young black boy? Know that the groaning that we're in, the spirit of God says, you don't groan alone. He groans with us. He takes our words and I believe the spirit of God makes a confused, heavy mind sound beautiful to God. So there's no parts of you you have to hide. You can be so enraged, spitting at the mouth, telling God what you want to see. He groans with you. So you have to understand if you look back in Psalm five, you have to understand that it says about God in Psalm 5, 5, verse 4 and 6. The psalmist started off talking about groaning, and then he moves to this space, and he says, For you are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Do you know what that word abhors means? It means he's disgusted. He is more than angry. He is more than thrown off. He is disgusted by bloodthirsty men and bloodthirsty systems. If you think you're angry, look at God. He is holy. He is set apart. He is angry and he's angrier than you. And he shows us his justice and his love by sending his son to die on a cross, punishing sin and showing us how he feels about sin. And at the same time, allowing him to resurrect, showing us that we needed hope. In the cross, we see justice. In the resurrection, we see hope. We need both those stories tonight. He is disgusted by what he saw in Flatbush, Brooklyn, where policemen were running into people. He's disgusted by that. 
He's disgusted by a president that says, if there's looting, there is shooting. He's disgusted by that. And let me just tell you, if you know anyone that does not see that our president has a problem within the within way he sees people, I don't think you should listen to that person anymore to be a voice for the Lord. No, God is disgusted with that. And so what, what he does here is he moves us to this place. He says, I'm angry with you. But he lastly says in verse 11, let all who take refuge in you rejoice. Let them ever sing for joy and spread your protection over them that those who love your name may exult in you. Look what he says. He says that God is a refuge. And he says we can rejoice because God is a refuge. And he's saying we can move closer to him. So he's, God is like, I am in the protest with you. I am saying Sandra Bland's name. I am saying George Floyd's name. I am protesting with you. But listen, I, since I'm protesting with you, let me protect you. Let me cover you. I am a refuge. Come to me. And, and, and what I believe is that God is not only interested in doing away with evildoers, he's interested in you being close to him. Do not live in the presence of your newsfeed. Do not live in the presence of your rage. Yes, be upset. Yes, be frustrated. We are being traumatized. But in the midst of knowing that God is angry with you, God wants you close to him. Let him protect you. Let him protect your heart tonight. Let God move closer to you tonight. You will only traumatize yourself more if you wait for a new president to change this world. You'll only traumatize yourself more if you think a redistribution of people in a police uh, system will in some way bring reform. This problem of ours is we think the government is corrupt. Sometimes we think white folk are corrupt. We, we think churches are corrupt. Until you understand that humanity is corrupt and it needs hope and a pure and blessed savior, until you see that, you will always keep putting hope in bad places. Don't put your hope in a president. Don't put your hope in a government. Don't put your hope in police. Don't put your hope in any kind of human system. Human systems always fail. God does not fail. Put Put your hope in God. That's the story we have to tell our kids. What story will we tell our children? Our beautiful children. What story will we tell them? Will we tell them that only bad things happen to bad people? Will we tell them that, oh, he was really hopped up on PCP? Will we tell them, if you comply, everything will be okay? Or will we tell them in its very root and very core, America has been a system of injustice and we're called to expose systems of injustice. Little girl, when you're on that playground and you hear them tell that joke, you tell them that's wrong. When our white daughters and our white sons when they defend the oppressed and the marginalized, 
And then maybe we will live in that dream that Martin Luther King had when he said his, he wanted his four little kids to live in a world where they'll be judged, not by the color of their sin, but the content of their character. He said, I want that for my kids. What do you want for your kids? What is the story that you'll tell? It's not in the protest. It's at the dinner table. It's in the seminary. It's in the churches. My white brothers and sisters, lead the movement. In the name of Jesus, lead the movement. Lead the movement. Lead the movement. My white brothers and sisters, lead the movement. You lead. You write the book. Lead the movement. In the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, touch our country, God. In the name of Jesus, touch our country, God. The division that we see, God, the division that we feel, on Pentecost Sunday, there was this incredible moment where the spirit of God came down and people of all nations were there speaking one language, the language of love. They were worshiping and yet they spoke many different languages so much that people didn't understand them. God, would you let the church rise up and let us lead the charge of changing our country. One dinner table, one barber shop, one police station, one church, and one seminary at a time. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.